0: presented by Matthew in the chapters that precede this one. He talks about the miracles, the healing, the feeding, how he interacted with the people. He talks about his dealing with the church, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the legalism that was in the church, the, uh, you know, the traditions that they had developed, and what, what were they built on, what was important, what wasn't important. And then we also look at his teachings and the one that sticks out, especially in Matthew's the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes and, and those kinds of things, I think, are the most popular when you talk about Matthew. Today we're talking about two topics. I think we could call it Peter's confession. There's, there's two really distinct parts in, in, the, uh, in the scripture today verse, I'm going to do this sort of as an exegesis. I'm just going to work through the verses from the beginning to the end. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We start in verse 13. And it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is really interesting. It sets sort of the idea, the context, as to what we're going to read, uh, what we're going to learn we, I think we know that Jesus was being followed by a number of people, not just his disciples, but there were a number of other people that would follow him from town to town, and he would come into a town, and people would hear what he had to say, and he would gather more people to him. And then he would move on to the next place, and some of them would fall away because they found that what he had to say was difficult, and some people would just stay with him. Caesarea Philippi was a relatively new city, and it had been built... Near Mount Hermon. Um, that was the source of the Jordan River. It was an area that the Greeks called Panaeus, and which is interesting because there was this worship of the god Pan in the area. It was about as far north as you could get and still be in Israel itself. But the area was definitely Gentile and it was definitely pagan. And when they got to this area as far north as they were a lot of those people that would have been following Jesus around would not have been there anymore. And so this was a time where Jesus could spend just with his core group with these 12 men that he had chosen to follow him. It's very important to note that Jesus was also preparing for his return to Jerusalem when he would be killed. And I don't think that the uh, disciples had any idea that this was going to happen. And they had been spending this time with him, and they had been watching him perform his miracles, and dealing with the church, and, and teaching. And I think they really felt special to be with him, but the truth of what was going to happen wasn't there. And it hadn't struck them yet, even though Jesus had been... If it had been foreshadowing and and telling them, you know, things are going to happen. This is a very major turning point, not only in Matthew's gospel, but in the lives of the apostles as well. And we're going to see that as we get further into the verse. Jesus asks his disciples in the second part of verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man, the the word that Jesus uses, is a unique term that he brought upon himself, that he refers to himself as. This term only appears in the four Gospels, and it is referenced by Stephen in the book of Acts. It's an Aramaic title, which I think is interesting. Jesus uses Aramaic from time to time when we read through the New Testament, and this is an Aramaic title. And so I'm not sure if it would have had any secondary meaning, but I know that it is something that he chose specifically when it came to sort of saying who he was as a description, saying, this is who I am, I'm the Son of Man. It's interesting that this title comes from the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 7, verse 13. And Daniel has a vision... And he talks about seeing the Son of Man. And, and I think there's something in that, if we were to look at the prophecies of Daniel and how he talks about what was going to be coming. And he was prophesying to, to what we see as Jesus coming, as God coming to earth. In this, in this verse, Jesus is inquiring of the disciples. He's asking them questions. And I think here when he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He is asking them, do the people see him only as Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus has said, you know, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And if people are looking at him and they're saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth, then they're saying, you know, this is a local man who has a lot of really good things to say. And we've seen this before. We've seen this, from time to time. And there's a verse in the New Testament where one of the leaders of the church says, you know what, if this is just a flash in the pan, it'll disappear. And we don't have to worry about these disciples starting anything because it's happened before and a man's come and he's had great things to say and he's got all, all these followers and he dies and then everything is finished. And I think Jesus is saying, is that who they, they think I am? That I'm just another teacher that is, that is sharing wise things and that once I'm gone, this will all be finished. Do the people who are following him see through the veil of his flesh? And Jesus was man. He was completely man. He was also completely God. And did people see the fact that he was God, or did they only see him as man? Had they connected his works and, and his teachings with the nature of his person? Jesus was testing the disciples to see if they had been paying attention. And they had been with him, and they listened to what he had to say, and they had watched how he lived, and they watched how his prayer life was, and how he talked to God, and how he led himself, and all those things, and were they connecting the dots? Had they been paying attention? Why did Jesus ask his disciples who the multitude thought he was? I don't think it was a question to further his own knowledge. I think he knew very well what the answer was. We read in John 2, verse 24 to 25, that on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And we read later on in John 6, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe. And so his question wasn't for his own information or for his own gratification because he knew what was in the thought of man. Was he interested in public opinion? Did, you know, was he following the polls? when he went from this town to that town, were there people going ahead and saying, you've got to get ready for this guy coming, and was he this popular movement that was coming through, and did he really care if he was popular? And I don't think he, he did. I think this was for the disciples, and he was strengthening them, and he was preparing them to teach. Because they needed preparation, he wasn't going to be with them forever. And we know that as we continue on, they come to Jerusalem, and he is tried, he is ultimately convicted, and he is crucified. And I think this points a little bit towards verse 20, where it says that he shouldn't share this, that he shouldn't tell anybody that he was the Christ. He was preparing them for their very first hurdle, and that was accepting his divinity. Up until this point, they had not been asked to think about him necessarily as God. But they were going to have to very quickly accept the fact that he was who he said he was. Can you imagine how imposing that would have been? Can you imagine following someone and, he, and they turn around and they say to you, all right, I am God. And I don't think personally that I would have a very easy time with that. I don't think that's something that I would roll over in bed at night and not worry about, that I would wake up the next morning and I would be like, alright, I'm okay with this. And I can, I can keep on going. I think this would have been very disturbing to the disciples. They just don't know it yet. And they're going to find out really really soon. But he is preparing them for this. He's been teaching them and he's been leading them and he's been preparing them for this. We get to verse 14. It says, And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but others still Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. These are all opinions, and these opinions are very, very wide of the truth. A lot of times we have an idea about what something is without necessarily having our finger on what the truth is on that idea. There are many different opinions And there's a saying that says, many many men, many minds. People were not willing to see him as Christ. People were not willing to see him as God. They were very comfortable seeing him as something else. These were very honorable opinions. You know, they weren't disrespecting who Jesus was by referring to him as these other people. It shows a level of respect, and it shows very sober thinking from those people who loved him. They suppose that he is someone who has been come from the grave. There is a confusion of resurrection. If you look at them saying he's John the Baptist, I think there's a little bit of a timeline issue here, because Jesus and John the Baptist met each other. And John was born a little bit before Jesus, but there's no way even if he had come back from the dead, that he would be the same person. Um, They think he was a good person of antiquity. Again, it points to someone familiar. If you can read about a prophet, if you can read about a, a popular person, you can form an opinion about who that person was look at who, what their life was all about, what they represented, you could form an opinion, and you become very familiar with that person. And, I don't, and that is far from the truth of what Jesus was saying. These are also false opinions. They are built on willful mistakes. He was not who they expected him to be. They expected him to be a powerful conqueror and he didn't be that person for them. He had a whole different reason for being there. And these four people who are mentioned are what we call types of Christ. John the Baptist died as a martyr, and we know that Jesus died, and he was seen as a martyr. Elijah was known for performing miracles, and we know that Jesus also performed miracles. Jeremiah is said to have been set over kingdoms and nations. And I think we can see how that points to Christ. Him being set over kingdoms and nations. And he was a prophet. He was a man of honor. He was all these things. So we move on to verse 15. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Jesus is pushing for a deeper insight. This is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to to see that very quickly. He's imparting wisdom like a veil lifted from the eyes. In John 1 verse 10 it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And His disciples were standing right next to Him, And they did not know who he was. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Jesus is pursuing a childlike faith with his disciples. He's not asking them a very difficult question. The problem is that there are barriers between what he's asking and the answer that they are going to give. He is asking them for complete trust and faith. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. I'm going to read a little excerpt from his opening preface. It says, It is obviously impossible for an adult to worship the conception of God that exists in the mind of a child of Sunday school age unless he is prepared to deny his own experience of life. If by a great effort he will, he does do this, he will always be secretly afraid that some new truth may expose the juvenility of his faith. And it will always be by such an effort that he either worships or serves a God who is really too small to command his adult loyalty and cooperation. It often appears to those outside the churches that this is precisely the attitude of Christian people. If they are not strenuously defending an outgrown conception of God, then they are cherishing a hothouse God who could only exist between the pages of the Bible or inside the four walls of a church. Therefore, to join in with the worship of a church would be to become party to a piece of mass hypocrisy and to buy a sense of security at the price of the sense of truth. And many people of goodwill will not consent to such a transaction. I used to work up north in the oil fields. I drove truck. And I thought I knew what I was doing. I've been driving truck for 20 years now. And I'd pulled all kinds of loads, and I had done pretty much everything I thought I could do. And here I found myself up in the oil fields. And we're driving down the Alaska Highway, and it's the middle of winter, and the weather is horrendous, and there's trucks in the ditch all over the place. And I'm the number one truck. I'm in the, in the lead. And behind me, I've got two more trucks and a pickup. And we're driving down the highway, and we got to this hill. And as we're climbing up the hill, there's trucks spun out all over the place. And I had a lot of weight on, I had a lot of traction, and I thought this is good, I can get up the hill. So I gave it a little bit more, and I climbed all the way to the top of the hill, and the other guys followed me up to the top of the hill. And we got to the top of the hill, and I realized that it was all black ice. And we got to the top, to the crest of the hill, and I looked down, and there was this long hill, and at the bottom there was a corner, and the whole road was covered in ice. And I started going down, and I started sliding. And I hit the brakes and the truck started jackknifing and I thought, I'm not as smart as I seem to think I am. (laughs) And the truck's sliding and I got on the radio and I said to my supervisor, the road's icy, I'm going to have to stop and put chains on. And my supervisor said to me on the radio, release the brakes. And I thought, what kind of a maniac are you? I'm on the top of a hill that's covered in ice and I'm sliding and you're saying to me, release the brakes. I released the brakes and the truck straightened out and I made it to the bottom of the hill. We had no problems. But it didn't make any sense. It was counterintuitive because I knew too much. And my supervisor said to me something very, very simple. And I couldn't believe him. In a way, I think this is what Jesus is doing. He is saying to His disciples, I'm asking you to give me a very simple answer. But they know too much. And He needs to break through that. And He's saying to them, release the brakes. Let it run. And you'll be fine. You'll get to the bottom of the hill, and we'll all be okay. This verse, this question that Jesus asks, is the great hinge. Before this verse... The disciples have been observers, and they've been students. After this verse, they are changed. They are complicit in what is going to happen in Jerusalem when they get there. They are guilty by association. They are entered into a commission. When we read about that at the end of Matthew, they become empowered, and they become enlightened. And this verse challenges us to answer the very same question. In verse 16, we get Peter's answer. And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter speaks because he is the spokesman, he is the loudmouth. He is always the leader. He is the first disciple who is in any list, especially when you read Matthew. He's the one that walked on water, he's the one that comes to Christ on behalf of the disciples. And asks for explanations of parables. And he's the one who is addressed by the people around them. When they come into the, uh, the temple and they're asked about paying the tithe, it's Peter that the church leaders come to and ask him about. Peter's also the one that gets himself in a lot of trouble. And we read not very far off from this when Jesus rebukes him and says, Get behind me, Satan. Right here when Simon Peter answers the question, he is not speaking on his own. He's speaking on behalf of the disciples when he makes this confession. This is not only his confession. This is a confession of all 12. When we read in Matthew 14, 32, that he had walked on the water with Christ, the disciples on the boat said, you are certainly God's son. And that answer foreshadows what we have just read right here. In John 6, verse 69, Peter says, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This confession that he makes right here isn't sudden and is not unexpected. It is something that has been growing inside him and the rest of the disciples. And now they stand on that confession and they say, you are the Son of the living God. He is the Son of God. I'm going to get into a little bit of semantics. When you put the word the in front of something, it makes us stand apart. In other places in the, in the Bible, like Job 1 verse 6, the angels are addressed as a Son of God. In John, verse 1, or John chapter 1 verse 12, even we as Christians are called a Son of God. This is not the same thing. He is the Son of God. He is the definite article. He is the One. He is set apart. He is the Anointed One. This is a very different thing when he says, you are the Son of the living God. He is saying there is no other. There is nothing comparable. You stand alone. He is recognizing the deity of Christ. And then we move into the second part. And it talks about the blessing, about Peter's blessing. Verse 16, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus informs Peter that there is a blessing on him, and there is a blessing on the disciples. And it has come to them in the form of a divine revelation. We should never take lightly our getting to know Jesus Christ. And are recognizing who he is. There's no room for pride that we have been smart enough, clever enough, or studious enough to figure it out. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It is not enough to say that Jesus was a good man or a great teacher or even a prophet. All those views strip him of his nature and his divinity. It is not enough to say that Christ is God. Because Christ is also man. Christ is perfect and He is sinless. He exists as two natures in one person forever. The blessing here is the revelation and the manner in which it came. That it was given to Peter. That it came from the Father. It did not come from Peter himself. When the revelation comes to us, when we see God for who He is, It is because we're chosen, that we are elect. And God says to us, I need you, and I want you to know this. And when your heart is ready, I will reveal those things to you. And it has nothing to do with how good we are. We are all sinful, every single one of us, and we sin every day. When we read the Bible, one of the first things that we're taught in the Old Testament is that our hearts are evil above everything else that we deserve nothing less than destruction. And and God is saying to them, there is a blessing on you, that you deserve something, and I'm going to take that on myself, that you do not have to bear that. In verse 18, Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is a word play in this verse. And this has been a stumbling stone, if you like, in the church for a very, very long time. The word Peter in this verse means a stone or a pebble, something that you could take with your hand and you could move from place to place. The word rock in this verse means a boulder or bedrock, something that you cannot move on your own, something that is significant, and something that is formidable. Jesus is talking about the foundation of the church. And that foundation is the confession. It is not Peter the Apostle. Jesus here is talking about the foundation, about the revelation that has been given to his apostles. This is the truth, and it has been made known to them. And it is the foundation of all biblical truth when we read the Bible. Uh, This is what the people of God are built on. If you read our Confession of Faith in the Mennonite Church, Article 2, it says, There is no other foundation anyone can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our church is built on this foundation right here in this verse. This is a really, really important thing for us to know. How is that manifest today? Do we see that foundation in today's church For for Christmas, I got a book called The Forgotten God by Francis Chan. It talks about the Holy Spirit. And there's a section in there that talks about the church. And he says here, Even our church growth can happen without him, referring to God. Let's be honest. If you combine a charismatic speaker, a talented band, and some hip and creative events, people will attend your church. Yet it does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God is actively working and moving in the lives of the people who are coming. It simply means that you have created a space that is appealing enough to draw people in for an hour or two on Sunday. It certainly does not mean that people walk out the doors moved to worship and in awe of God. People are more likely to describe the quality of music or the appeal of the sermon than the one who is the reason people gather for church in the first place. The Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to our situation today. Of course, he is always vital. But perhaps, especially now, after all, if the Holy Spirit moves, nothing can stop him. If he doesn't move, we will not produce genuine fruit. No matter how much effort or money we spend, the church becomes irrelevant when it becomes purely a human creation. We are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and the presence of the Spirit of God. We move on to the next part of the verse, and it says, And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's important, I think, to see this as a prophetic vision of Christ's death and resurrection. I think it's talking about the defeat of Satan and of death. I think it's talking about the resurrection of believers. Death will not prevent us from returning to the Lord. Because the church belongs to Christ. It belongs to the Son of Man. And when Jesus died, it says he went down to Hades. And I think we are taught that he defeated death. That he went down there and he broke through those gates. And he made a way for us to come to him. And I really believe that this is what is being referred to in the verse. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What was given to Peter was given to all the disciples. It was given to the continuing leadership of the church. That's today's church. That is us here today. Those keys are given to us. And it represents the authority to preach the gospel. It opens the door of heaven and it allows people to enter. The first place that I think we see this is at Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 14 to 42. And Peter is preaching after the Holy Spirit has come down and people have started speaking in tongues. And Peter starts to preach and he talks about the revelation of the nature of Jesus. He shares the importance of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, he invited all who heard him to receive the gospel of truth. And he's using these keys, and he's saying to them, I can, I can show you how to get in. If you come and you listen to what I have to say, if you listen to the truth, and you understand the importance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can do something for you. I can show you something. And the next part of the verse, I think, becomes difficult. I think it becomes distorted. It says, whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. When I was researching this, I couldn't get a straight answer. I said to, uh, to Dan last week, nobody agrees on this verse. Everybody I listen to has a different idea. So I'm going to give you my idea. Because I didn't like any other ones. <laughs> There's two parallel verses that I found. One in John 20, and it says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And in Matthew 18, verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be have been loosed in heaven. These verses tend to lend themselves towards church discipline. But discipline is effective only against true sin. And true sin is defined by God's word. It is important to note that the church does not have authority on its own to legislate what is morally right and wrong in an absolute sense. That authority belongs to God and God alone. And this does not give the church the authority to grant forgiveness or absolution of sin. That authority belongs to God alone. And so I think these verses could speak to the response to sin in our own lives. In Mark 9, verse 38 we see the disciples talking about freeing demons from people and healing people, and they say to Jesus, even the, even the spirits obey what we have to say. He, we've been given a certain authority, we've been given a certain power, but it's not of us. It is of Jesus. When we sin, we can go to God and we can say, God, I've sinned, and I've done this thing, and I want you to take that from me, Bind that sin and take it away from me. If we're struggling with something, we can say to God, take those struggles from me. You know, let let me be someone who can worship you and not be bound by those things. Loose me from the things that bind me on this earth. That helps me understand possibly what Jesus is saying in here. And like I said, it's varied. Depending on who you turn to, who you ask they seem to have a different way of interpreting this verse. But I think this is a very personal verse when we think of the context of Jesus talking to his 12 disciples by themselves, away from the group. He is saying, I am giving you a blessing, and this is the blessing, that you can come and you can speak with me, and I can help you out with those things that are bothering you, that I can help take away the burden that you feel. Verse 20 is the end. It says, He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. And I touched on this very brief- briefly. It wasn't time. The rest of the people were not prepared to see Him for who He really was. The revelation of Jesus as the Son of God was limited to the disciples, it was to prevent misunderstanding among His other followers. It was to allow time for the disciples to process this revelation. And it was to maintain the perfect plan put in motion by God. It wasn't time for others to know yet. But the disciples had crossed that hurdle. The disciples had gone over the hinge. And they were at a point now where they were very vulnerable. And the things that they believed had changed. And I think Jesus now had to solidify that in their minds. And he said, not yet. It's not time for the others. Let's work on this right now. Things are going to happen that are going to challenge you, and you need to be working through that right now. These verses are about two things. They are about identification, and they are about blessing. First, we're asked to identify who do men say that Christ is? In his sermon, Apologetics in the 20th Century, Ravi Zacharias makes a few notes that I want to share with you. Today, there is a popularization of the death of God and the willingness that people have to live with those ramifications. A 100 years ago, 150 years ago, people like Nietzsche and Darwin were saying, what does this mean for human life in the terms of ethics or the lack thereof. They may have said, God is dead, but it bothered them. And they said, what does this mean for us? Today, we have popular humanists like Richard Dawkins, who have a very different and very cavalier attitude towards this. Dawkins has said, there is no such thing as good or evil. We're just dancing to our DNA. G.K. Chesterton wrote... The tragedy of disbelieving in God is not that a person ends up believing in nothing. Alas, it is much worse. A person may end up believing in anything. There is a destabilizing religious pluralism, and it is very pervasive. Today's spiritual leaders, such as Deepak Chopra, have popularized Eastern mysticism and Eastern philosophy, and what has happened is that our culture is no longer with a point of reference. The notion of the coexist philosophy that we see on bumper stickers is a cancer. It is wrong. It is heretical. We cannot agree to this sort of thought. Jesus Christ does not stand in a group of people who can't agree on the color of the sky. Jesus Christ represents truth. He is not even in the same category. He is the creator. He is the one that stands above all. We need to remember that God is not malleable. He is not formed by our notions and our whim. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, never, he doesn't change. He is God. He has always been God. He will always be God. He never changes. And just because we don't like some of the things that Jesus has to say in the Bible, just because we don't agree to some of the things that are written there, means that we need to go and ask Him those big questions. Why do I not agree? Why do those things rub me the wrong way? And I think when we ask those questions, it reveals something about us. It reveals something about our nature. It reveals something about the things that are happening in our lives that we need to work on. It shows us where the sin is that is hidden and that we think we can get away with. There is identification when we have to ask, who do we say he is? I don't think the British, British monarchy should be our example of kingship it seems like we run a people's parliament and we have a picture of Jesus on the wall. And we get together and we make up all these rules and we make up all these laws that we want to follow and we have this picture of Jesus or a cross on the wall and it's more of a decoration. And it doesn't mean anything. We wear the shirt, we have the cross, we collect the souvenirs and we ignore him until it suits us to fly the flag for an hour every week. And who do we say Jesus is? I'll go back to J.B. Phillips from his book. Is God too small? What role does he play in your life? Is he your comforter, your guidance counselor, your moral and ethical compass? Is he your king? Is he your God? How do you present him? When you're with your friends, when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're at church, Is he the same in every instance? He needs to be the same. You need to represent who he is. You need to be the ambassador because people will see him through you. The most important confession is coupled with action. And there is a blessing. And we need to remember the blessing. And the example of Peter shows that if you come to know Christ, then you have been blessed by God and you can anticipate to be blessed Through Christ. This is not a promise that life will become easier. A lot of you remember Sean, and days before he died, he talked to Dan and I. And I remember him saying to me, You know, when I came to the church and I became a Christian and I did all those things, I thought it was going to make things easier. I thought my life would become manageable. And I remember sitting with him upstairs in the, in the, uh, in the office in the, in the boardroom there and talking to him and saying to Sean, you know, becoming a Christian doesn't make your life easier. You are going to have struggles now that you cannot handle. You, you are going to be attacked from every side. This is not the easy way out to become a Christian. And it was just days before he died, he said to me, you know what, I get it now. You know, I thought it was a quick fix. And he said, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But you know what? He knew it. He knew it. The light was turned on. The veil was removed. And even though, in the end, his decisions cost him his life, he knew, in his heart, who God was. Have you ever read the poem, Footsteps? At the end of the poem, where it says, that Jesus carried you, doesn't that just all of a sudden open your eyes? It's like you went through the whole poem and the person talks about walking side by side with God and then suddenly there's one set of footprints. And it's not that they were doing it on their own. It's that Jesus was carrying them through that. And that revelation, when your eyes are open and you suddenly figure it out, that's the holy revelation. That is what The blessing is. That is the most important thing. And when Peter says, You are the Son of God, that is our confession. That's the hinge. Everything in the New Testament hinges on that. The question of who do you say Jesus is, is the most important question that you have to answer today. It is the hardest thing you will ever do because the implications are eternal. Who is your king? Can you answer that question?